Welcome to week 21 of our Believe series as we unpack what it means to live out the story of the Bible to become like Jesus. In our 30-week journey, taking us through what it means to think and act and ultimately to become like Jesus, we've looked at many different traits and characteristics. This week we are going to begin a series of characteristics, mainly um, that you might know as the fruit of the Spirit out of Galatians 5. These are the things that the Spirit is supposed to work in us so that we would become like Jesus, so that we would live and act like Jesus lived and act. There's a man named John Griffith. He lived in the 20s. He was very fortunate during these times because he had a job. He also had a son, a double blessing. His son was the apple of his eye. John's son was a normal little boy who constantly wanted to go to work with his father. John decided one day that he would take his boy to work with him. John was a bridge conductor across the Mississippi River. He was in charge of raising and lowering the bridge so the boats could go through and the trains could pass over the big river. John's son was so amazed at the gears and all the things that went along with his father's job as the bridge would raise and the bridge would slowly come back down. On this particular day, they had brought their lunch to work with them and decided to eat their lunch out of the bank of the river. As John was eating his lunch with his son, he remembered that the train would be coming in less than three minutes. So he told his little boy to stay right here and finish his lunch, and he'd be right back. And he jumped up and ran up so that he could lower the bridge for the train that would be coming, the Memphis Bell, carrying 300 passengers. John didn't want to alarm his son. So as he hustled up the stairs, he grabbed the lever to lower the bridge. And as he did so, he realized that somehow his son had climbed up and was in between the gears that were necessary to lower the bridge. And in this moment, as John could hear the train coming, carrying 300 passengers, in his mind, he started to go over ways that he could get his son out from the gears and still get the bridge lowered on time. But he knew it wasn't possible. He had to make a choice. And as John lowered the bridge, just in time for the train to pass, crushing his son between the gears, and John looked as the train was passing by, and men and women were reading their newspapers, sipping their drinks, and talking to each other with no idea the fact that someone had just died so that they could live. And John, in his frustration, screamed out at the top of his lungs, Don't you know what I've just done for you? But of course, they didn't hear him as he screamed again, Don't you know what I've just done for you? But they just went along with their lives not realizing what he had done. John sacrificed his son so 300 others could live. And that's a true story. But we have an even greater story of a God, the creator God, who sacrificed his son so that we could live in eternity with him. And that's the story of love. 
So our question that we look at today is, what does it mean to sacrificially and unconditionally love others? What does this involve? Where does it come from? And ultimately, for us Christians, what does sacrificial and unconditional love look like? Because we can't just talk about it. We have to live it. We have to demonstrate it. Augustine had said, anyone who thinks that he has understood the divine scriptures or any, any part of them, but cannot by his understanding build up this double love of God and neighbor, has not yet succeeded in understanding them. In other words, much like the book of James, he's saying that faith without works is dead. If you think you understand the scriptures, but you don't have love for God and your neighbor, then you don't understand the scriptures. The scriptures are clear that the way of life for a follower of Christ is the way of love. But in today's day, we love so many things. Pizza, people, sports, dogs, family. It's difficult to know what is really meant by the word love. The love that we're going to look at today is primarily this agape love. Some of you may have heard of that term. Okay? It's the unconditional love that God has for us and that we are to have for each other. This is the love that comes directly from God. Thus, as his spirit works in us to make us like himself, we should begin to demonstrate this type of love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 says, The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. The apostle John here makes it very clear what love is, the fact that it comes from God, that God is love, and that we, if we are Christians, must love one another. If you don't have any of this love in your life, then you don't have God in your life, is what he's saying. So a person claiming to be a Christian but lacking this characteristic is both a liar and not a Christian. This makes the issue very serious for us. Because if we lack love, then we really can't say we're a Christian. John chapter 15, verse 5, gives us a little bit of insight into how this love works in our lives. Jesus here compares the Christian life to a grapevine. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit, because you can do nothing without me. How much can you do without Christ? Nothing. nothing. You can do nothing without Christ. We are the branches. People love ripe and delicious fruit, but no one likes to eat unripe, rotten, or artificial fruit. Jesus wants to produce in you and I the fruit that brings great joy, both to ourselves and to others, and ultimately to God. For this to happen, we have to remain in Christ. And the word remain just means to stay put, stay in fellowship. Don't let sin come between you and Jesus. Don't let sin get into your life. Stay in a proper relationship with God and follow him. Remember, I'm always saying that instead of the word Christian, maybe follower or disciple is, is more appropriate. You follow Jesus. If you stop following, you're not remaining in him, to use the terms in this verse. Spiritual growth works like the growth of fruit. The longer we remain consistently with Christ, the better it gets. It has to mature. Nurturing the passion and discipline to think and act like Jesus is our part in remaining in the vine. But we don't act alone. God and the Spirit, they work their part to bring to fruition and maturity this fruit in our lives. As we remain in Christ, the gardener, Jesus, does his work, and eventually buds begin to appear on the branches. And with time, the fruit grows and ripes. 
Good tasting fruit is evidence of the health of the branch on the inside. Mature fruit will help the people God has put in our lives. It attracts them to us. It cares for them. It gives them refreshment. It pleases God when we give out the love that he's put into us. The vine and the branches. You see this image on the screen here. The, the, the thin branches, okay, that's the term from the, from the Bible, with, with the grapes hanging on them, okay, are connected to the vine. The vine is that thicker piece. All right? And that is Jesus in the illustration, in the image, the metaphor. All right? So all those luscious clumps of grapes that are hanging on those thinner branches, okay, that's what we're supposed to produce. So if Jesus is the, the thick vine there and we are those branches, the question is, do we have the fruit like that? Randy Frazee tells of a time when he received a lemon tree as a gift from a family in his church. At the time, he didn't know much about how to care for a fruit tree. So he and his wife, they read about how important the soil is to the health of the tree. They learned about the size of the pot in which the tree is planted, the proper way to prune the tree to make it more productive. They found out about the importance of water, the amount of sunlight, the proper balance of both, etc. At last, the following spring, they saw their first lemon begin to grow. By the summer, they decided to make the transition from gardener to consumer. So the single lemon, just one, was green. They thought, well, maybe they gave us a lime tree instead of a lemon tree. So they picked it. He took a knife. He cut it in half. It turned out it was an unripened lemon picked way too early by an inexperienced gardener. And to their dismay, they had to throw out their crop. It was no good. And he learned... But even the timing of the picking of the fruit is crucial to enjoying it. Growing good fruit while a labor of love can also be a challenging task. And Jesus used the analogy of fruit to teach about the spiritual growth process. He said that becoming like him is much the same as growing a crop. Jesus defines the different roles, but he's the one who grows and matures that fruit in your life and in my life. This is one of the reasons later on, in a week or so, we'll talk about the idea of patience. We have to be patient with one another. Because as God is growing the fruit in our lives, it's not always mature fruit. Sometimes the amount of love we have for one another is like this unripened lemon. And it's more like a sour lime than it is anything else. And so we got to be patient as we remain in Christ. And so as we think about the diagram we've had on the screen every week, the think and the act and the be, as we move from thinking uh, to acting and, and to being, I want to recall and, and remind you that in the center of that is the idea of the presence of God. That, that God is the one who in the midst of this is working this out. I'm not who I was 10 years ago, and I'm not who I will be 10 years from now. Hopefully, I will be much more like Christ 10 years from now and much easier for Melissa to put up with 10 years from now than what I am today. If not, we have a problem. <laughs> Chris Carrier of Coral Gables, Florida, was 10 years old when a man became so angry with Chris's father that he abducted Chris. The kidnapper burned him with cigarettes, stabbed him numerous times with an ice pick, shot him in the head, and then dumped him out to die in the Everglades. Miraculously, Chris survived and was found. His only lasting physical effect from the ordeal was losing sight 
in one eye. His attacker was never captured. Chris became a Christian, and he later, later served as a youth pastor at a church in Florida. One day he received word that a man named David McAllister, a 77-year-old, frail and blind, ex-convict living in Miami Beach in a nursing home, had confessed to committing the crime all those years ago. So Chris Carrier headed to Miami. Did he bring a gun with him? Did he plot revenge on the way? Nope, he didn't. The old man was helpless, just as Chris had been when McAllister had tortured and shot him, leaving him for dead. No, revenge wasn't Chris's motive, as it had been his captors. Carrier was going God's direction, toward forgiveness, and amazingly, yes, even love. Chris began visiting McAllister regularly. He often read the Bible and prayed with him. And through these visits, Carrier eventually led McAllister to the Lord. Carrier said, quote, While many people can't understand how I could forgive David McAllister, from my point of view, I couldn't not forgive him. If I had chosen to hate him all those years or spent my life looking for revenge, I wouldn't be the man I am today, the man my wife and children love, the man God has helped me to be. Love results in forgiveness. Forgiveness and love are very much intertwined. So let me ask you, what comes out of you when you're squeezed? When fruit is squeezed, whatever's in it comes out. You get grape juice from grapes. You get grapefruit juice from grapefruit. You get tomato juice from tomatoes. You get carrot juice from carrots. Okay? What comes out of you when you're squeezed? Because whatever comes out of you is what's in you. That's what's inside you. You say, no, it's not. Someone else made me. No, they didn't. That's what's inside of you. We've got to deal with what's going on inside. The fruit that came out of Chris did not happen overnight. It happened as he matured, as God matured him, which is why we need that patience with each other. To have a life of practical love starts with being in right relationship with God so he can mature you as you stay connected to him. Otherwise, you can't produce the love of God. You may produce some works that you do of yourself that resemble God's love on the surface, but they will not be genuine acts of love from God and his spirit. The gospel, okay? We looked at this last week. The Dave Harvey said about the gospel, the gospel is the heart of the Bible. Everything in scripture is either preparation for the gospel, presentation of the gospel, or participation in the gospel. See, the good news isn't just for getting saved. It's for every day of our lives. So when Paul heard that the Christians in the area of Galatia were being led astray, he wrote him a letter called the Letter of Galatians. We have a copy of it. If you ever thought about, man, I wish I could have something that the apostles wrote. Guys, we do. It's the Bible. Paul wrote half of the New Testament. All right? We have their actual letters. Think about it. If you were off hunting somewhere, like not hunting in the woods, but like looking for old stuff, you know, antique stores or whatever, and you came across something that Jesus wrote down or the apostle Paul wrote down, how excited would you be? But, yeah, you would be, right? But, but the thing is, we already have it. It's in the Bible. And we just forget. We don't get excited about it at all. We have these letters that the Apostle Paul wrote. You don't have to go find them in an in a antique store. We have them right here. And so Paul, as he hears about the Galatian Christians, and he hears that they're struggling with each other, and they're attacking each other, and there's a definite lack of love going on, he writes them this letter. A letter about 
how they should be living with each other. Now, remember, the gospel is good news, all right? And the gospel is a gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us that. It's a gift of God, not of works. So you've got nothing to brag about. So Paul tells these guys that we're to live by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we do that, our lives will look much different. And so in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19 and 20, he says, My children, I am again suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. That's key. Until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be with you right now and change my tone of voice because I don't know what to do about you. Now, the works of the flesh, I'm sorry, stop. So, Paul says that he doesn't know what to do about them. He's a little frustrated. Galatians is the only letter he writes that has no Thanksgiving section, okay? Paul is a little bit upset with these people because they're attacking each other. He calls it biting and devouring. Instead of living according to the spirit, the fruit of the spirit, and love. And so he describes what they will be like when formation is complete later on in the letter. Look at that text again. He says, I uh, suffered labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. So Paul's goal is that Christ would be formed in you. You would be that mature fruit. And then in Galatians 5, 19 to 21, Paul lays out the things that you naturally do. This is what your life looks like without Jesus. Okay? The works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. In other words, this is not the whole list. There's lots of more things. This is sinful life. This is life without Jesus. I tell you about these things in advance, as I told you before. Now, look at this. Those who practice, that means this is the way that you live your life, okay? Such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I, I just want you to be careful. We don't look at this list and say, yeah, that's all these other people, okay? Look at the word at the top of the screen that's still up there. Maybe you haven't been drunk, but what about envy? Envy is in the list. And if we went back to the first screen of the verse, you would see that other things are in there as well, like hatred and strife and outbursts of anger and jealousy. These are things that don't come from the Spirit of God. So therefore, they come from where? Okay, they come from our own evil flesh and what i mean by that is your evil nature your sinful nature that's where they come from they don't come from god so these are the things that paul says we should not have in our life and if this is how you live your life okay you got no part of god now let me just make a, a clarification in case some of you are starting to think oh no i had envy yesterday am i going to hell remember salvation is a free gift from god and in salvation, okay, Jesus cleanses us from how many sins? All of our sins, okay? And so when Paul is talking about how you live your life, he says those who practice such things, okay? Now, a Christian will occasionally sin because we're not fully mature yet. Remember, Paul was praying that they would become fully mature in Christ, okay? None of us are fully mature yet. So what that means is that sometimes you're going to sin. Sometimes I'm going to sin. Sometimes I get upset and I might yell at you. Okay? 
I hope that that's not my everyday always practice, because if that's my everyday always practice, I've got an even bigger issue. If you get angry sometimes, all right, that means you do have an issue, right? But hopefully you're not angry all the time, because that would indicate not having the spirit. So that's what Paul's talking about here, all right? That we need to live differently, okay? So then he goes in Galatians chapter 5 and verses 22 and 23, the next verses, and he contrasts the works of the flesh with the fruit. Now notice that it's works versus fruit. It's not the work of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit, okay? Paul has expressed his desire to see Christ formed in the Galatians. That was in verse 419. And now he describes what they will be like when the formation is complete. These character qualities are not a new list of laws and moral codes that must be kept. They are the result of living and being led by the Spirit. These are characteristics of God that the Spirit of God will produce in the believer that is submitted and in fellowship with God. In other words, a Spirit-filled believer will manifest the same character and conduct as who? God. Exactly. He is the vine, we are the branches. If you stay in him, then you're going to begin to look like him. And what does that look like? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, if you want a verse to learn that covers the whole last 10 weeks of our series, this would be a good one for you. Because we're basically going to look at all these characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. Today we're looking at the first one, love. Paul has this list here. Now, that list, all right, is not even all-inclusive. One of the things that I've learned over the years of studying the Bible, and it, it comes up in this passage also, is that we really approach the Bible completely different than how the first century believers approached it. Many, many times, probably the most of the time. When Paul's writing this list, he is not trying to write a list of every single fruit that the Spirit produces in your life. He only lists nine of them. We can look elsewhere in Scripture and find another characteristic not listed here, okay, that comes from the Spirit. And so that would be a fruit of the Spirit, wouldn't it? Okay, so we looked at spiritual gifts a few weeks ago. Okay, well, who do those come from? The Spirit, right? They're spiritual gifts, right? They come from the Spirit. Where does this fruit come from? The Spirit. So really, these things are all ways that the Spirit puts fruit or manifests himself in our lives. All right? So I just want us to keep that in mind because we read Scripture, and a lot of times, especially in Paul's letters, there's these lists of things. Okay, these lists are not all-inclusive. Okay, those are, they're examples that relate to the situation that he's addressing with his letter. All right? So, love, this first characteristic of a spirit-filled believer. Okay, this agape love that we know from John 3.16, right? You could probably all quote it. God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This kind of love that a husband is supposed to have for their wife, Ephesians chapter 5. This kind of agape love that Christ has for the church. This is a self-sacrificing love, not a self-serving love. Now, we will concede, as Spurgeon is, is said to have stated, that fruit does not start from the tree perfectly ripe at once, 
However, we will also proclaim that God expects growth into maturity. So, yeah, maybe, maybe you're a green lemon right now. Okay? Maybe your love's not quite where it needs to be. But a green lemon, if left on the vine, will become what? Yellow lemon. And then it's usable as a lemon. All right? So let's remain in the vine and let's grow. Now, if you look at scripture, there's multiple books written on theology and different characteristics. And, and many will argue that love is the chief characteristic of God. Okay? First John 4 8 says God is love. Many will argue that love is the chief attribute um, or characteristic through the story of the Bible and it should be in our lives as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which also was written by the Apostle Paul, in verse 13, uh, Paul says, Now, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And so here we see that love is at the top of the list, that love is the greatest thing. It is eminently fitting that this love, this agape, should stand at the head of the list of virtues, for love is the measure and goal of freedom. The freedom that we have in the spirit, that the spirit works through us. Why does God do what he does? We're going to see in a minute, when I get to the end today, that this idea of love, Christian love, is much different than anything else. The, the, the basis of it, why it exists, why we should perform these acts of love, are much different than anywhere else. Yes, No. God wouldn't tell anybody to do something that's sinful. Wrong is sin, right? So God doesn't sin. So no, he would never do that. God always puts forward love. Now, the thing is that you've got to realize, though, is that love is a choice. Right? That's one of the things that you have to choose. Love is a choice. Now, it's a command, but it's also a choice. All right? So in Galatians 2.20, we read this. This life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, God loved you and gave himself for you. Why did he give himself for you? Because he loved, loved you. Okay? So we need to learn from the example we have in Scripture. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6 says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. So you have to have faith that's trust in God, be following Jesus, but that faith has to work, has to show itself by what? Love. You've got to have love. You can't just say, I believe in Jesus and be a hate monger. You have to say you believe in Jesus and love. Galatians 5.13, you were called to be free, brothers, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. This is the choice. Okay, do you have a choice to do evil every day? Yes. Yes, you do. You have a choice to do evil, or you have a choice to show love. You make the choice. So love is a choice. Jesus chose to go through with the plan of the Father. Okay? We'll talk about why in a few minutes, but one of the reasons was his choice to love. Okay? His choice for you. And Romans 5, verse 5, says the hope 
will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So how do we have the love of God inside of us? Only because we have who inside of us? The Holy Spirit inside of us. So by having the Holy Spirit who is God himself inside of you, you therefore have the love of God inside you because God is love. You see how that works? See, this is where your understanding of scriptures needs to come together. Where you get aspects of Romans 8 that you have the Holy Spirit and 1 John 4, 8 that God is love. And so therefore you put them together and you realize that if you have the Holy Spirit, you also love God and God is love. So that's how you get the love inside of you because you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 14, he says, above all, put on love. Again, above all. This is the top thing. Put on love. The perfect bond of unity. You want unity? Then you've got to have love. Or you're not going to have your unity. Now, what does Jesus say about love? Okay? Jesus did say some things about love. In John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, he says this. I give you a new command. A new command. Love one another, just as I have loved you. You must also love one another. But this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now, you got to ask yourself right off the bat, do you have love for each other? Because if you don't have love for each other, then people aren't going to know that you're what? Christians. You're not going to know that you are his disciples. Okay? So first off, Jesus here uh, commands it. Okay? Now remember, if, you, if there's a command, you have a what? To obey it. A choice. All right? Commands, laws, you have choices, right? Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. 37. Now watch this. He says to him, okay, this is Jesus. He's been asked, what's the most important command? All right? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And then he says, what? The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So when Jesus is asked what's the most important thing in life, he says love. Now, if you were to ask 100 people on the street, they might say love also. But their idea of love and Jesus' idea of love are not the same. And that's what you need to understand. We're talking about biblical Jesus kind of love. We're talking about love that, number one, it's a choice, okay? Number two, it was commanded by God, all right? But we're going to see, remember, you still have a choice as to whether or not you're going to do it. But watch this, okay? Jesus digs further, okay? And here's where the love of Christianity is different. In Matthew 5, 21 and 22, it says, You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, Do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Whoever says to his brother, fool, will be subject to Sanhedrin. Whoever says you moron will be subject to hellfire. Now, Jesus has moved okay, from murder to anger. Jesus has moved from the external to the internal. What goes on in the heart drives what you do with your hands, feet, and your mouth. And so... Here Jesus is saying, it's not enough that you don't physically murder somebody. I want to address what's going on in your heart. How could that young man, his name was Chris, how could he go visit the man who had tortured him when he was a kid? It's because in his heart, he did not hold anger and hatred 
but instead had let the love of God change who he was. And so the love of God through the Holy Spirit was now flowing out of him, just like the love of God through Christ on the cross flowed out of him for you and me. We see that Jesus commands a love that involves choice and commitment. And this kind of love costs something. So we have love that's a choice, yes. But look at Matthew 5.44. I tell you, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now you know this verse. But Jesus isn't joking. Remember, he did pray on the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. He prayed at the cross answering this exact thing here. Stephen in Acts prayed the same thing when he was being killed. So, love is a choice, yes, but love is also a commitment, and love has a cost. So if you want to know three things about love, you want three points on your sermon outline, then you can write down, love is a choice, love is a commitment, and love has a cost. And all these verses we just looked at demonstrate this. You see, you are not going to forgive your enemy unless you are committed to love. And every time it's a choice. And there's a cost involved. Was there a cost to Jesus? Yeah, there was. So let's take this, all right? You know how I love the Old Testament, all right? And let's look at the Old Testament and what it says about love in just a couple of places. And we're going to start as a springboard with what Jesus had just got done saying when he had said in, in Matthew that you've heard that it was said to our ancestors don't murder and where he had said that you should love your neighbor as yourself, and where he had said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, we read these and we think, yeah, this is all New Testament stuff. No, it's not. This is all Old Testament stuff. This new command that Jesus said, yeah, it's really not a new command. Watch this. In Exodus, okay, when God had freed the people from Egypt, okay, this is what he said. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Okay? Now, he's taken them out, and then he's going to give them the Ten Commandments. Okay? But I want you to just pay attention, okay, to what that says. Okay? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Okay? Now, this is where you really have to... Um, Pay attention when you read the Bible, and you got to read big chunks at a time, maybe even listen to it, whole books at a time if you can, because here's the things I'm going to show you are the things that we miss. So that's Exodus. So God's people are freed. He gives them the Ten Commandments. He tells them how to, how to build the tabernacle, and then the book of Leviticus shows up, and Leviticus is all about worshiping God. And having your life in a way that worships God. And God's going to show up, so, he, so here's how you need to be living. So now watch what he does here. In, in Leviticus 19, 2, the B just means it's the second part of the verse, okay? He says, speak to the entire Israelite community and tell them, be holy because I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. Now here you have some of the same words that were in Exodus. Now this is 19, 2 of Leviticus. All right, I'm going somewhere with this, so stay with me, okay? Then in 19:36, part B again, he says, you are to have honest balances, honest weights, and an honest dry measure. 
and an honest liquid. That's four honesties, right? I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, where have you seen that before? In Exodus, when God freed them from Egypt. Now, is it accidental that Moses writes it again in Leviticus? No, no it's not accidental. It's on purpose to help you put the two together. <clears throat> Jesus placed love at the center of everything, including the Old Testament. Okay? Now, watch this. In Leviticus 19, the phrase, I am Yahweh, is found 16 times. Now, if you're in the back and you can't read all this, okay, you can see probably the, the top paragraph it looks like. That's chapter 18 of Leviticus. Okay, It says, I am Yahweh, four or five times. Then the whole next section, the big long list, is chapter 19. 16 times God says, I am Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal name of God. All right? And then in chapter 20 at the end, he says it um, three or four more times there. Now, why would this refrain be repeated all through here? Because this is a, a structural marker. This is why it's not accidental. When Moses is writing, he's putting this in there on purpose to keep highlighting and emphasizing this fact. From, from this whole covenant that God has with his people, he wants them to understand, I am your God and you are my people. Okay? This is what happens in the New Testament too, guys. When you become a believer, God says, I am your God and you are my people. Just like in the Old Testament. And as God gave them the, the Ten Commandments for them to follow as a guideline, um, commandments to live what their life should look like, he expects us, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to have lives that are similarly demonstrating the character of God. If you go through and look at the Ten Commandments, you know what the Ten Commandments is? The Ten Commandments is the character of God. Think about it. God is not a man that he should lie. One of the commandments is you shall not lie. Okay, one of the commandments is you shall not steal. Does God steal? No, he created everything. How could he, right? The commandments are a reflection of the character of God for God's people to live their lives in such a way that they reflect God himself. If they would do that, the people of Israel were supposed to be a light to the nations. And what does Jesus say in Matthew 5? That you are salt and light. No, the New Testament is not something completely different than the Old Testament. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. These markers in the book of Leviticus show us what God is concerned with. In Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18, it says, You shall not hate in your heart anyone of your kin or family. You shall reprove your neighbor or you will guilt on yourself. And in verse 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. Now we just need to let this sink in for a minute. You need to read this again three or four more times probably. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5? Jesus said it's not enough not to murder somebody. He said you shouldn't have what in your heart? Hatred, Hatred in your heart. Well that's interesting. This is Leviticus. The book that Christians don't like to read, but what was the first book the Israelite children memorized? 
This is the book that is the middle of the Torah. The Torah is the first five. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right smack in the middle. This is the book all about how to worship God in your whole life, not just laws and sacrifices, all of your life. I'll show you in a minute. So you shall not hate in your heart. Huh. So when Jesus says in Matthew 5, it's not enough not to murder, but I don't even want you to have hatred, that's not something new, guys. That's old school. That's Leviticus. You shall reprove your neighbor. What does that mean? That means if your neighbor did something wrong, you go and tell him. Well, that sounds a lot like Matthew 18. Leviticus 19.18 says you shall not take vengeance. Well, that's interesting because Romans tells us that who is the one doing the vengeance? God. Leave it to God. And the last part of Leviticus 19, which is what Jesus quotes when he's asked what's the greatest commandment, the second commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. Where does that come from? Leviticus 19.18. Yes, Stanley. Of course the Bible is a repeat. The Bible repeats itself so many times that it's almost ridiculous, and yet we are so thick-headed, we still don't get it. So We're messed up. Well, that's a good question, but what you find is that basically what we're talking about right now is that whether it's in Leviticus or Matthew, and those two are thousands of years apart, the people have the same problem. And guess what? We're 2,000 years after Jesus, and we have the same problem. You see, people are the same all the time because we have a sin nature, and we refuse to submit to God. And even when we do follow God, like the Galatians, we still end up with the same problem. Why was Paul writing to the church at Galatia? Because they were biting and devouring each other, which means they had hatred in their hearts and weren't loving their neighbors. That's Leviticus. Right? Exactly. So you see the whole storyline. The other answer to your question is that you read the whole Bible to see what God is doing through history. See, this, this is called salvation history. The Bible is God's story of salvation, but it's also the story of history, the story of the salvation history. So you don't learn about Jesus being the Messiah until you get to the New Testament. Okay? So that's kind of like the icing on the cake. So you, the cake's being built all along, you know? And then you get the icing on top, you know what I'm saying? And so that's kind of how the, the Bible, I've never used that illustration, but, you know, it's the icing on the cake, right? So, Leviticus. The epicenter of Leviticus, okay? If the summons to holiness in 19.2 constitutes the keynote message of Leviticus, then the command to love and not hate each other in 19, 17, and 18 brings us to the epicenter of the book. What does this mean? If Leviticus is the middle of the Torah, Leviticus 19 is the middle of Leviticus. So if you want the middle, middle of the Torah, it's Leviticus 19, 17, and 18, which contains that verse, love your neighbor. Now, the interesting thing is, if you were to look at Leviticus 19, <clears throat> people are very confused about what to do with it. So let's look at 19.18 again, and then I want us to maybe look at a couple other verses. Again, do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. Remember, God is saying, I am your God, and you are my people. 
Have I forgiven you your sins? Yes. Then you must follow and forgive others their sins. I've shown you love when you didn't deserve it, and you must show each other love when they don't deserve it. That's what we're talking about here. That Leviticus deals with the very practical matters of this. Ballantine says, The importance of how one lives in relationship with others in the human community is equal to, if not even greater, than the requirement of fidelity to God. What he's saying is this. God cares just as much about your relationship with each other as he does with your relationship to himself. In fact, your relationship to him is demonstrated by your relationship with each other. I'm just going to leave that on the screen for a minute, and now I'm going to read you a few verses. They're, they're not on the screen, but they're in Leviticus 19. Okay, And I want you to see how much these relate to today. Now, I'll also admit there's some verses in Leviticus 19 that are more difficult for us to figure out what, what to do with them today. But let me just show you how practical Leviticus 19 is. In verse 9 in Leviticus 19, it says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you are not to reap to the very edge of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You must not strip your vineyard bare or gather its fallen grapes. Leave them for the poor and the foreign residents. I am Yahweh your God. So this is a verse that teaches us. See, n none of you probably have a little farm out back of your house, right? So you're like, well, this doesn't apply to me. Well, that's not true. It does apply to you. God is saying he cares about what two groups of people in that verse? The poor and the foreigner. And he's saying you better take care of them. Because at one point in your life you were poor and I took care of you. And at one point in your life you were a foreigner and I took care of you. And I am your God and you are my people. So you must take care of the poor and the foreigner. So yeah, you've got a choice. The question is how committed are you? You must not steal, verse 11. You must not act deceptively or lie to one another. You must not swear falsely by my name, profaning the name of your God. I am Yahweh. Verse 13, you must not oppress your neighbor or rob him. This sounds a lot like the Ten Commandments too, doesn't it? You must not harbor hatred against your brother. Verse 17, you read that one already, right? Then he has rules about um, sex and how you should demonstrate love towards each other by what you do or don't do and how you treat other people in this passage also. Then he has um, some different things about um, what you can eat and not eat and how you treat your body, okay? We live in a culture that thinks you can do anything you want with your body. No, 1 Corinthians 6 says that your body belongs to who? God. God. You cannot do anything you want with your body. Not if you're going to be committed to God and be faithful to God. Then he talks about not going to psychics and mediums and spiritists in verse 31. Then he talks about rising and showing respect to the elderly and honoring the old. And he says, fear God, I am Yahweh. He talks about the foreigner again and not oppressing the foreigner in verse 33. Not using unfair measurements in verse 35. In other words, not ripping people off. These things are all very much appropriate. And God expects us to live our lives in such a way that these are part of our life. So love is a commitment. It's a choice, it's a commitment, and it has a cost. Okay? Love is a choice, yes. Love is also a commitment. It's a commitment to your devotion to God. When God says, I am Yahweh and, he, Yahweh, and he's saying, I'm God and you're my people, he's saying, you live this out, you choose to love this way because you have a commitment to our relationship. I'll show you that 
in the book of Ruth. Okay? And Ruth 1.8, if you know the story of Ruth, okay, you know that, that Naomi had been married to a man, and they had two boys, and there was a famine. And so they went to Moab. Now, Moab was a place that uh, God's people weren't supposed to really be. It was kind of a cursed place. But in their famine, that's where they went. And the man's two sons married two girls from Moab, which makes them Moabitesses, okay? And in the course of time, the man died, and the two sons died. And that left the mother and the two daughter-in-laws, okay? So you have Naomi, the mother, and then you've got Ruth, okay, and Orpah, okay? Now, when that happens, in Ruth 1.8, this is what it says. She said to them, Naomi, each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show faithful love to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. Now, what she's saying is this. Listen, you're from Moab. You have family here. Go back home to your family. I'm going to go back to my place in Israel, to Bethlehem, okay? You go back to your home. And that word faithful love there, okay, that's the word chesed, okay? And it means a commitment to a relationship, okay? She says, you go back. May God show you chesed, faithful love, to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. In other words, you've been committed to my husband and to my sons. And I pray God will show you the same blessing. In Ruth 1, verse 16 and 17, it says, Ruth says, do not persuade me to leave you or go back and not follow you. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Ruth says, where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May Yahweh punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. What do you have here? Yes, Ruth has a choice. But here you have Ruth's level of commitment to this choice. See, this is where Christian love comes in. It's a commitment to go all the way. If anything but death separates you and me, Ruth says. Ruth is committed to this relationship. That's what that word I just taught you, chesed. God's covenant relationship that he's committed to. And Ruth is demonstrating this with Naomi. Scott McKnight says, neighborly love is whenever and wherever love it doesn't matter that they're in a foreign country. It doesn't matter where they are. It doesn't matter who the person is. It's a commitment to act out this love of God no matter where you are and no matter who the person is. And so we get to Ruth 4.15. And this is how the women of the community describe Naomi. They say about her, he will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. They're speaking about Naomi. They're saying that how her old age, her life, will be sustained by what God has done in her life. And they're saying how Ruth has loved her better than seven sons. Seven meaning the number of completion or perfection. In other words, Ruth has been the perfectly committed, loving 
daughter, even though she was from what country? Moab. Moab. A foreigner, which, despite the fact that there was a curse on Moab, what have we already read in Leviticus? <coughs> that God also does have love for foreigners, does he not? And so you have this illustration from the book of Ruth about the level of commitment and the choice and even the cost. What did Ruth give up when she left Moab? She gave up her country and her family back home to go to a new country with Naomi. And why did she do that? Because if we looked back again at those verses in 16 and 17, she talks about Naomi's God becoming her God. What drove Ruth's commitment? Her relationship to who? God. Gordon Clark has said, Chesed is a supreme human virtue standing as the pinnacle of moral values. This is the word that is used for God continuing to commit to his plan and covenant with his people. Oftentimes it might say covenant faithfulness in your Bible. This is the word. When you see that, it's this word. Richard Briggs has said, Love is not an independent virtue exercised in interpersonal relationships such that it could be separated from the broader ways in which life requires allegiance to one God or another. What is he saying? He's saying that just as in Ruth's situation, her commitment to God, to Naomi's God, led her to act in such a way that the love of God manifested itself in her life towards other people. That's the same thing. That's what has to happen in your life as well. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 through 12, says love consists in this. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. Now, that's in the form of a command. That's a must, right? But again, you have a choice. And so what you do in response to this will show what your choice is, your level of commitment, and the cost that you're willing to pay. There's a cost. Stephen lost his life because of love. There's a cost. Art Lindsley says about the cross, he says, The cross is the only basis on which community can last, because no other religion or philosophy makes reconciliation and forgiveness an absolute necessity. And I want you to think about this for a minute. You have friends that have other beliefs. They're part of other religions. Their religion does not mandate that they forgive. Jesus says, if you don't forgive others, I don't forgive you. That's Christianity. Why, why does Jesus say that? Because the love of God comes, and when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes in you, and since God is love and the Spirit is love, therefore God's love is now inside of you, and it must flow out of you to do the same thing to others by forgiving them, just like Chris did with the guy who had abused him when he was a kid. Other religions do not mandate that. Yes, forgiveness is great. Yes, love is great, but it's not mandatory. In Christianity, it's mandatory. Leanne Morris has further said, It is the cross that brought a new dimension to religion that gives us a new understanding of love. The New Testament writers saw everything in its light, the light of the cross, finding their ideas about love revolutionized by what the cross meant. Now, now what are we dealing with here? You know John 3.16, right? God so loved the world, he gave his only son, right? He gave on the cross. 
As, as we wrap this up, here's what I want to challenge you on, another level. The cross of Christ is yet another reason that Christianity is unique. For not only does it require love and forgiveness from us, but we're given the spirit to produce that love and forgiveness if we could just stay in the fellowship with the Savior. See, other people may demonstrate some sense of love, but the reality is that true love is rooted in biblical love. For those who don't have Jesus, if they demonstrate something that looks like true biblical love, get this, they've either done it themselves, okay, they've chosen, they've committed, and they've suffered, okay, so you can do that, okay, you choose to love, you commit to it all the way through, and you suffer, you lose something, okay, that's just part of the equation, okay, but they have done it in spite of their personal religious beliefs. Now, now here's, here's what I want you to get for this. This is why um, love is the great apologetic for Christianity. This is why Jesus said, by your love one for another, people will know you're my disciples. Okay? Because even Richard Dawkins, okay, who is an atheist, all right, he's written multiple books. Now listen to what he says. He says, universal love and the welfare of the species as a whole are concepts which simply do not make evolutionary sense. What he's saying is this. Without God, okay, he believes in evolution. Okay? Evolution beget, believes in survival of the fittest, chance, and all these things. There's no God involved. Well, if it's survival of the fittest, does it make any sense to help somebody else? No. No, it makes no sense. It's contrary. Because if it's survival of the fittest, you only help who? Yourself. Yourself. So there would be no reason in evolution and in atheism to help somebody else. So the very fact that people sometimes do help other people, it's not because they're an atheist. There are atheists that are nice people. There are atheists that would help somebody else. But it's not because they're an atheist, because their atheism says don't help somebody else. It's contradictory. Are you all with me on this? It's the same thing with uh, New Age thinking, okay? The community of Christ. In contrast to atheism and New Age spirituality, the church, the community of Christ, is there to help stimulate one another for love. See, in New Age, New Age people are all about connecting with everything. So either they look inside themselves to figure out who they really are and be one with themselves, so they're looking inside, or they're looking up to be connected with, like, the universe or gods or whatever spirits are there, etc. So they're either looking in or up. But they're not looking out to help somebody else. Are you with me on this? So this is where Christianity, all right, I'm over your head, some of you, I realize, but this is where Christianity, okay, parts ways with New Age, with atheism, with evolution, with other religious thinking. Because it's rooted in this idea of love that we're talking about. And that love is rooted in the cross of Christ. Without that, it really doesn't make any sense. But with the cross of Christ, with the demonstration of Jesus and what he's done, it makes complete sense. And as we get his spirit that died on the cross inside us, it can then flow out of us. And the fruit of the spirit and love can be demonstrated to one another. So what does it mean to sacrificially and unconditionally love others? Our key idea is simply this, that we are committed to loving God 
and loving others. That's going to take a choice. That's going to take a commitment to God and being his people and seeing it through. And that's going to involve a cost. Choice, committed, and a cost. When we do that, the love of God will flow through us. And we will demonstrate that love to others. Let me pray for you. And then we'll go to our table talk. And let, let me wrap it up with, with another quick story that Brian Chappell told one time. There was these two brothers, and they were playing out in the sandbanks by the river. And one ran after another up a large mound of sand. And unfortunately, the mound was not solid and their weight caused them to sink quickly into the sand. When the boys did not return home for dinner, the family and neighbors organized a search, and they found the younger brother unconscious with his head and shoulders sticking out above the sand. When they cleared the sand away to his waist, he woke up, and the searchers said, Where's your brother? And he said, I'm standing on his shoulders. The older brother had sacrificed his life for the younger brother. He was buried below the sand. The younger brother was standing on top of him. That was a choice. That was a choice that the brother was committed to. He saw it through to the end. And that was a choice that cost him. That cost him his life. Jesus made a choice. He made a choice to love you. Jesus was committed to the choice. Despite praying three times in the garden, is there another way? He committed himself, and he drank the cup, and he saw it through to the end. And that choice cost him something. It cost him his life. Father, we come to you this morning thanking you, first and foremost, for the love that you have. Jesus, we thank you for being committed to your choice and seeing it through to the end. We thank you that you send us the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, to give us the love that can be shown to others and be lived out. God, we confess. We have immature love in our lives, God. Forgive us. Help us to be patient with one another. Let your Spirit work boldly and powerfully in our lives to bring a mature love into our lives that others would see and that people would look at us and be able to say they have the love of Christ. They are followers of Christ. And God, I pray that if there's somebody here today that doesn't know you, that they don't have that love, that they don't understand the love of God, that you would speak to their hearts today, that they would cry out to you and asking you to forgive their sins and asking you to, to come into their lives and, and give them that love, to be part of your family, that you could say, I am God and you are my people. They could be part of that process. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.